If this morning is your uh, first visit to the Tamothelium Church, then you might be or might feel at a little bit of a disadvantage because uh, this is week 11 of our present series in the New Testament letter of the Philippians. So I thought maybe for the first uh, short part of our service this morning that uh, I would recap a little bit and have a quick update on what we've been looking at so far. The Apostle Paul, as probably many of you know, a first century Christian who had the most amazing conversion. He was transformed from being uh, the greatest persecutor of Christians into becoming the greatest advocate and the greatest missionary. Of the 27 books that we find in the New Testament, 13 of them are written by Paul himself, an amazing man. Paul was sent out from his home church in the city of Antioch in Syria uh, to declare the good news about Jesus to essentially non-Jewish people living outside of Palestine. And uh, Paul travelled thousands of miles on foot and by sea to tell others about Jesus. And on his second missionary trip, he came to a city called Philippi. It was a city in northern Greece. And Philippi was a, a Roman colony. That means a little Rome outside of Rome. So in Philippi, they had Roman customs, they had Roman laws, they spoke the Roman language of Latin, and they wore Roman dress. And Paul shared the message of Jesus with this Roman colony in Philippi, and a number of them became followers of Jesus. And we read about this in Acts chapter 16, which was written by one of Paul's companions, a medical doctor by the name of Luke. And we were told that the first convert there in this ancient city of Philippi was a very wealthy businesswoman by the name of Lydia. And Lydia and her whole household came to faith in Jesus. Following this, a demonized slave girl was set free when Paul commanded the evil spirit that was controlling her to leave her. And as you can well imagine, that would have caused quite a stir in that community in the town. And the owners of the slave girl were not very pleased at all with Paul and Silas for doing this because they used this girl to predict the future. And now her source of power had gone and she was useless to them. So they got Paul and Silas thrown into prison. But in prison, Paul met the jailer of the prison and there led his family and him, him and his family rather, to faith in Jesus. Now that's a brief brief version of how this church at Philippi got started in round about the year AD 50. Paul then left the city to continue his missionary journeys throughout the Roman Empire and he continued to have a good relationship with this church in Philippi. Let's move the story on now 10 years. 10 years time Rome, Paul was now in Rome he was under house arrest. He was awaiting trial by Emperor Nero, a terrible man. And at this time, he doesn't know whether he's going to live or die. Well, we actually know he lived, and two years later, he was released. The benefit of hindsight. But during that time of uncertainty, he wrote four letters. And four of those letters are found in our New Testament today, including this letter to the Philippians, which we at Tamworth Helium, we have been studying this now for 10 weeks so far. And as with any letter, there's always a reason or a purpose in writing. And Paul's main reason for writing this letter to the Philippian church was to thank them for a gift that they had sent him. That was the main reason. 
but it wasn't the only reason. He also writes to report on his circumstances and after all, they were interested in him, they were his friends, and to encourage the Philippian Christians to stand firm in their faith and to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus. Another reason that uh, Paul wrote to them, and we'll find out a bit more about this next week, was that there was this insidious heresy that was going around in those days, and Paul wrote to address that as well. It also appears that there was some disunity in this ancient church in Philippi, this ancient city. So Paul encourages the church there to be humble. I think that's pretty wise, really, because pride very often is the root of disunity, isn't it? So the antidote of that would be humility. And this theme of unity and humility and considering other people to be better than yourself has continued in our teaching here in this church for a number of weeks now. So a quick recap over some of the verses that we've looked at in recent weeks, and then that will bring us up to speed. In chapter 1, verse 27, Paul writes, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And in that same verse, he tells them to be one in spirit and to be as one man for the gospel. Going on a few verses, in chapter 2, verse 2, he writes to them and says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, and being one in spirit. Again, you get this theme of unity. The next verse. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. So again, this theme is continuing. Following verse. Each of you should, con- should not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, I might be stating the obvious here, but for Paul to need to write these words to the church in this place called Philippi indicates that all was not well there. And by the time that we eventually get to chapter 4 in our studies, we find out that there were two women in the church who were at loggerheads with, with each other. And what happens when people fall out? When people fall out, other people take sides. And I can well imagine that that was the problem there in this city of Philippi. The next thing that Paul tells them is your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Okay, what was that like? What was Paul telling us there? In which way has our attitude got to be the same as Jesus? Well, then Paul continues to answer his own question, really. And he says, he gives actually a magnificent first century hymn that the Christians probably sang together of Jesus being in heaven but laying aside all the outward trappings of heaven and coming to earth and humbling himself to become a man. And then humbling himself even further than that to die on a cross, the most awful and despised of deaths, crucifixion. And why did he do this? He did this because he was looking out for the interests of others. In other words, he was putting their needs, putting our needs first. And then Paul moves on in his letter to inform the Philippians that he intends to send two men to them, Timothy and this man with a funny name called Epaphroditus. Now, at first glance, when we read this, uh, these scriptures together, 
It just seems as if Paul is giving some practical details of his travel plans to his colleagues. But as we look closely at this, we can observe that Paul is still talking about humility and the need to look out for others. Now, uh, Dan gave a great talk last week. My word, wasn't that, wasn't that an absolutely brilliant, brilliant talk on Timothy? And um, Paul writes uh, these words of Timothy that uh, you looked at last week. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So all the way through, right through this letter to the Philippians, the theme is much the same of putting others before yourself. And Timothy is quite well known in the New Testament. There are two New Testament books written by Paul that were written to Timothy. But in addition to that, Timothy, alongside Paul, co-authors a number of books in the New Testament. He was well known, but who's this, this Epaphroditus guy? He isn't very well known at all. In fact, he's only mentioned twice. And on both occasions, in, it's in this letter of Paul to the Philippians. I need you to do that, just to bring you up to speed if you're not with us so far. So we're going to pick up today's reading uh, from Philippians chapter 2, verse 25, just six verses. And if uh, you don't have a Bible with you, if you're a part of our church normally, I do encourage you on a Sunday, do bring your Bible along and a notepad if you, if you can. And um, if not, if you're not, I'll put the, the verses up on screen. Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honour people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Now again, before we jump into this um, passage today, I want to point out that the, the subject still hasn't changed. And the theme that we see in these words is that theme which was uh, given to us in chapter 2, verse 4. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, based on that teaching... Paul gives us three wonderfully solid, concrete examples of those who put others before themselves. And the first one, of course, is Jesus. And then after Jesus, we find Timothy. And now the third example is Epaphroditus. So what's going on here? Paul is in prison. And his old friends from Philippi, they hear about uh, Paul being in, in need And they send one of their own church members, this guy Epaphroditus, to Rome with a financial gift. How do we know that? Well, we are told in the the last chapter. We haven't got there yet. But uh, Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 18, 
I am amply supplied now that I have received the gifts you sent. Now, we know that prisoners in the modern Western world are cared for whilst in prison, but in the ancient world, there was no social welfare, no social benefits. And the only way that Paul could have his needs met were if his friends came to supply those needs. And Epaphroditus, this guy who came, traveled over 800 miles, mainly on foot, to be with Paul, which don't you think is an amazing example of a guy going out of his way to put the needs of other people first. So what does Paul say about this man? Well, he calls him my brother, a co-worker, a fellow soldier. He says he's you, a messenger. He's the one that you, Philippians, sent to care for Paul. And St. Paul also tells us that he nearly died and he was very distressed not because of his own illness, but because of people back home in Philippi hearing that he was ill, and he was distressed because they were distressed. And then Paul concludes his words about this man by encouraging the Philippians to welcome him. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and to honor people like him. Now, this guy who's only mentioned twice in Scripture really is the epitome of Christianity, Christian leadership particularly. He has a servant heart. He rolls up his sleeves to get stuck in. He puts on his walking boots, and he travels from Philippi to Rome. He goes the second mile, or we could say he went over 800 miles to get there to Paul. But let's dig a little bit deeper. Some of these words that he says, uh, Paul writes of him. He calls this man, Epaphroditus, my brother. Now, in our culture, it's difficult for us to understand fully the the full impact of these words. You know, because many Christians speak of fellow Christians as my brother or my sister, almost in some kind of mechanical way. But when Paul was using those words, my brother, they were saturated with meaning because Paul was a Jew, and this guy Epaphroditus was a Greek. Now, in the ancient world, just as in our day, society was divided in all sorts of ways. It was divided through race and ethnicity and culture and politics and nationality. But no division was greater than the division between Jews and Gentiles. You know, If we look back and think of the past hostility in our world, past hostility, places like Northern Ireland between Republicans and Loyalists, or the animosity between Israelis and Palestinians, or in Central Africa between the Hutus and the Tutsis, or the factions in old Yugoslavia. Last week um, when we were on holiday, um, I read an absolutely brilliant, brilliant book um, I say it was a brilliant book, yet it was an awful book, uh, The Axe and the Tree by Stephen Griffiths. And it was a book on the Vumba massacre in Rhodesia 40 years ago, which that is being celebrated within the next week or so, 40 years ago, when nine Elim missionaries and their four children were killed, were murdered um, by uh, guerrillas. And uh, the, the book told of the factions 
that were going on there between the white landowners of Rhodesia and Robert Mugabe's Zanlu freedom fighters that brought the Rhodesian War of Independence in the 1970s and 80s. And, you know, we see this across our world, don't we? There's division in society. But as far as the Jews were concerned, there were only two classes of people. There were the Jews. They were God's chosen people. And they were the Gentiles, basically everybody else. Heathen dogs who could be treated with disdain. I'll give you some background. A pious Jew would pray daily and thank God in their daily prayers that God had not made them Gentiles. Also prayed that God had not made, thank, thank God that he had not made them slaves and women as well, but we're not going into that today. The Jews believed that the only nation that God loved was the Jewish nation and all other nations of the world were hated by him. I find that quite amazing really because in the Old Testament scriptures you've got the Jews being called as a nation which were a light to the Gentiles. So they were supposed to share God's love but they didn't see it that way. It was said also among the Jews that Gentiles were created by God as fuel for hell. When a Jew returned to his homeland, he would pause at the border and shake off the Gentile dust before going back into Israel. A little bit like what Julie and I do when we go back into <laughs> Wales. No, I'm only kidding. We don't. We used to. <laughs> if a Jewish boy or girl were to get married to a Gentile, that Jewish family would hold a funeral service, indicating that the one who had done this was already considered dead to their family. You see, the hatred wasn't just one-sided either. The hatred came both ways, and the Gentiles were not above persecuting the Jews. History reveals the terrible, terrible attempts on permanently, permanently silencing the religious Jews. Right, you've got the background. Now catch this, Paul reaches across this huge, national, racial, cultural, spiritual gulf that separated them and calls this Gentile, Epaphroditus, my brother. Wow, don't you see it now? My brother, that's wonderful. You see, only the, amaz only the gospel can achieve that. Only Christ can break down such barriers and create such unity. Paul writes to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 14. For he, speaking of Christ, for Christ is our peace who has made the two, that is, Jews and Gentiles, one, and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. In this astonishing book that I read last week on holidays, I read... Uh, about the Rhodesia massacre and the, as I say it was written by Stephen Griffiths. Now Stephen Griffiths is a, a medical doctor and a missionary himself. Stephen's dad Peter was the principal of the Emmanuel School where all of their friends and their friends children were murdered by, Zanlu, uh, by Mugabe's Zanlu guerrillas. But their family was spared because Peter and his family were in the UK at the time on sabbatical. And Stephen writes in his book of a time a few years later when his dad Peter 
was invited in what was now Zimbabwe to go and speak at a Bible college there. And during his visit to this Bible college, he was introduced to a man who was the commander of the guerrillas, who along with his comrades had killed 13 innocent people. At the time of the killings, this guy was an untrained teenage soldier leading a rabble of freedom fighters. But since then, he himself had become a Christian and was now undergoing theological training in order to become an evangelist. This man had come to faith and he had told of eight others who had committed this atrocity also coming to faith in Jesus. There's a certain irony in there. There were nine missionaries who were murdered adults and nine people who killed them actually came to faith in Jesus. And this man asked Peter for forgiveness. Wow. Wow. As you can imagine, that was an incredibly, incredibly difficult meeting for both men. But they concluded the meeting in praying together. And in years that followed, they became good friends. And they even worked together as Christian brothers. The man who did this, who was leading that group of people, actually became an elder in Peter's church. Though the rest of the church didn't know it at the time. Because that's the sort of thing that they couldn't share. But only God can do that. And Peter Griffiths, as it were, like the Apostle Paul here, reaches across that, that divide and says, my brother. He also says, calls him my co-worker. I love this. Paul was God's man, an apostle to the Gentiles, a brilliant scholar, a top-notch rabbi trained by Gamaliel, he was a man that God used in reaching the nations of the world with the message of Christ. A, mess, uh, a man whose uh, writings are included in the New Testament, a church planter. That was Paul. Who's this guy Epaphroditus then? Well, he was Paul's helper. He was a courier and a caregiver and a cook, performing menial tasks. And what Epaphroditus was called to do was very, very mundane. He just took care of Paul's needs. It wasn't some kind of high-profile leadership role. It was routine, it was monotonous, it was ordinary. Even so, Paul calls him his co-worker or his fellow worker. And Paul doesn't distinguish here between their roles. In effect, what he is saying, we're in this together. We're partners our tasks are different, yes, but we need and we rely upon one another. And Paul rightly elevates Epaphroditus' work, even though it's far more ordinary than what Paul was called to do. But, you know, just, just catch this. There are no vibes of superiority. There's no seeking of preeminence on this. There was no pomp and ceremony, no one-upmanship. And we see last week when Paul writes of Timothy... He writes in a similar fashion. In chapter 2, verse 22, Timothy has proved himself because as a son with a father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. And I've underlined that word, word there with because it's underlined in my Bible. 
Because Paul does not say that Timothy has served me. He does not say that Timothy has served under me. But he says that Timothy, Timothy has served with me. And one day, when we stand face to face with our Saviour, he will not ask us why we did not reach out to the unevangelized tribes of the earth or why we did not preach to millions if that was not our spiritual gift. But he will ask us whether we were faithful and obedient to the calling we received, whatever that calling might be. And if that calling was a support ministry, a support ministry just like the ministry of Epaphroditus, then I believe that we will be accountable for the way that we have served. I thank God, I really do, for the many people here who serve so amazingly in our church. People who have the same spirit as this man Epaphroditus, making Tamworth Elim the church that it is. And for many of you, I know that your work is done outside of the public eye. It's done quietly, it's done without much fuss. I just want to say thank you for that. During the Second World War, Britain needed to increase its production of coal. And uh, Winston Churchill called together the Labour leaders to enlist their support. And at the, time of, at the end of his presentation, he asked them to picture in their minds a parade which would be held at the end of the war in Piccadilly Circus. First, he said, would come the, the sailors who had kept the vital sea lanes open. Then would come the soldiers who had come home from Dunkirk and then gone on to defeat Rommel in Africa. And then would come the pilots who had driven the Luftwaffe from the sky. And last of all, he said, would come a long line of sweat-stained, soot-streaked men in miners' caps. Someone would cry from the crowd, And where were you during the critical days of our struggle? And from 10,000 throats would come the answer, we were deep in the earth with our faces to the coal. You see, not all jobs in church are prominent and glamorous. Not everyone is called to be a spiritual fighter pilot or naval commander. But those with their faces to the coal are those who help a church accomplish its mission within its community. There is no place ever, ever for any superiority or inferiority. We're all part of Christ's body. What else does Paul say to this man, Epaphroditus? He calls him my brother, a co-worker, and a fellow soldier. You see, the moment that someone becomes a Christian, they're enlisted into God's army. There are no conscientious objectors in spiritual warfare. Once we belong to the opposition, we were born into the kingdom of darkness, but when we were born again, we became children of light. We defected, we changed allegiance, and now we have a, an enemy whose work is to destroy and disrupt all that God is doing in people's lives today. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes these words, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. And my question is how does this metaphor of a soldier relate to our Christian lives today? And I've been thinking about this really for the last couple of days. Soldiers do not serve for their own purposes. 
No one becomes a soldier in life, um, a soldier for a life of comfort or ease. No one becomes a soldier to please himself. Soldiers are given orders from, from high command. They are commissioned and they go where they are sent. Soldiers are called to, to, called to show courage and loyalty and dedication to their cause. Soldiers need to be single-minded. Soldiers need to be disciplined for the task ahead and prepared to suffer for their cause. Paul writes these words to Timothy. Chapter 2, 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Join with me, he says, in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. And as I thought about all of that, I thought maybe this metaphor of a soldier is one that is needed more than ever in our day. As it appears to me, sadly, that some Christians have a take-it-or-leave-it attitude over their Christian faith. Instead of being passionate about Jesus and his kingdom, there are some who believe that they can follow Jesus on their own terms. And if things, if Jesus doesn't fit in with their plans or their private lives, then what they do, they expect Jesus to take a back seat. He'll never do that. He'll never do that. Jesus needs to be in the, in, in the driving seat. Not in the passenger seat, not in the back seat, but very much in the driving seat. Now, Epaphroditus was Paul's fellow soldier. And his life certainly wasn't a life of comfort and ease. Uh, he didn't put his own needs first. In fact, he cared more about God's will. He cared more about serving the purposes of God than his own comfort. And right at the very end of what Paul writes about Epaphroditus, he said that he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. And then Paul says these wonderful words, honour people like him. <coughs> honour people like him. And you see, Christians like Epaphroditus are really attractive. I think they are anyway, because they walk their talk. Christians like Epaphroditus are not showy and ostentatious. They just do the business behind the scenes often when no one is looking. They live their lives not, not for the applause of others, but they live their lives for the smile of God. They're those who have counted the cost in following Jesus, and they're willing to make a sacrifice in following him. Someone once said that joy is an acronym of putting Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. Epaphroditus was a guy certainly who put other people's needs before his own. Paul tells us that he nearly died. But it appears, and this is quite incredible really, it appears that he was far more concerned with the way that his friends back home would think and what they would think about his illness than what he was actually going through himself. You know, even when he was extremely ill, he was looking out for others and was distressed for them. On Friday, just gone, as many of you know, it was the funeral service of Theo. Theo was a five-year-old lad, a delightful, highly intelligent, very spiritual lad. Uh, just, just a lovely, lovely lad. 
And I know that many of you have been praying for him and his parents and their wider family. But in many respects, Theo was very much like Epaphroditus. Despite his illness and pain, which was great, he was often, as a young lad, five years old, more concerned about others, about his parents, grandparents, those who would be left. Rich and Claire, his parents, as desperate as their pain and loss has been, they also have been so, so concerned for others, for Theo's young friends, and how Theo's death has affected them. My own grandchildren, Amelie and Eli, are recipients of their care. They're remarkable people who need to really continue in our prayers. And I'm sure Claire wouldn't mind me saying this, but uh, following the funeral service on Friday, uh, she, she told me about this terrible time that they've had over the last couple of years of Theo's illness with cancer and then his death. But through that time, she has come to know that her faith is real. She said it wasn't just in her head, but throughout this time, it has been her foundation and her support. And she told me, because what she has been through she knows now that her faith is not make-believe. It's real. And apart from trying to hold back the tears when she told me that, I was reminded of Peter's words in chapter 1 of his first letter, where he writes, Though now for a little while you, have to, you, you may have to suffer grief of all kinds of trials, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. Time is gone. Let me finish. I want to finish with a true story, a story that is entitled, The Day Dill's Mother Died. The day Dale's mother died, she and Dale's father were having breakfast and suddenly she slumped in her chair and then fell to the floor. Her husband of 54 years ran around to the other side of the table, swept up his bride and went running from the house. He placed her in the front of the pickup truck and drove down the, the driveway like a boy racer. Sadly, the elderly woman was dead on arrival at hospital. After they buried her, Dale, his brother, and his father retreated to the homestead. They sat on the back porch in a rocking chair and reminisced. After an hour or so, the father asked Dale and his brother, What do you suppose that Mama is doing right now? What do you think she's doing at this very moment? <laughs> the two of them did their best to answer. Dale reaching into his vast knowledge of scripture and a wealth of theological knowledge for help. But it was his brother, his brother, who came up with the best answer when he said, Mum, close her eyes. And when she opened them, again, the first thing she saw was the face of Jesus. I think at this very moment, she's still reveling in that experience. Good answer. The old man smiled blissfully then began to recite the words of an old gospel so song. Oh, that will be glory, glory for me, glory for me, 
When I see his face, I shall look on his face. That will be glory. That will be glory for me. Then he said, take me back to the cemetery. Dale protested, it's, it's 10.30 at night. Don't argue with someone who has just buried his wife for 54 years, responded the old man. Now take me back to the cemetery. When they got back to the gravesite, the old man checked things out to make sure that everything was just as it should be. He tidied up some of the flower arrangements, rubbed some dirt off the stones, and then stood back and stared at the grave for a long, long time. He then reached out his arms and put it around each of his son's shoulders, squeezing his two sons against his bodies, he said, Boys, it was a good 54 years, and it ended in just the way I wanted it to end. Your mother went first. You see, when two people care about each other as much as your mother and I cared about each other, each wants the other to go first. I didn't want her to go through the pain of having to put me in the grave. If anyone was to suffer, I wanted it to be me. A poignant silence, the old man said, we can go home now. It was a good 54 years. And come to think about it, boys, it's been a good day. I hope you understand that. It's been a very good day. Dale's father, Theo, Rich and Claire, Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and most of all Jesus, are those in a long line of those who have looked out for the interests of others first. And Paul said to Epaphroditus, of Epaphroditus, honor such people. Wonderful advice. Wonderful advice. And I would say to you this morning that the, the best way of honoring those with the spirit of Epaphroditus is to follow their example. To live your lives serving others in Jesus' name putting their needs first, knowing that as we do this and serve the least in his name, we are serving Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Guys, if you'd like to come back, please. Dear Lord, just six verses that we've looked at this morning and yet hidden in the practical details of those words are such important lessons for us today. And I pray, dear Lord, that we will live those kind of lives. That we will not only honour people like Epaphroditus, but we will be like him. And that we will serve others in your name. That we will seek to put others' needs first before our own. That we will honour you, Lord, in doing this, we pray. And now, Lord, even as I pray, I'm sure that by your Spirit you are already putting concrete practical examples of that in our minds and hearts. And I pray, Lord, that as we just uh, pray upon this and as we think upon this more this week, I pray, Lord, Lord that there will be not just uh, nice, good thoughts about these things, but truly, Lord, that we will put into action those things that you're showing us just now.